I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I could not believe that getting to know a hawk made me love it so much that that hawk's desire became my desire, and I wanted to become its hunting partner. I just wanted to see the hawk fulfilling its destiny, fulfilling its joy, and its joy became mine. That's Cy Montgomery. Her almost uncanny ability to connect with creatures from rhinos to octopuses led her to a love affair with one of the planet's swiftest and fiercest predators. At the same time, she's been in a nurturing relationship with a collection of creatures who are the hawk's polar opposites, turtles. I think everybody just loves turtles. And one reason I wanted to study turtles and spend some time with them was because I thought they could show me something important about time. Who better to help me than someone who's been around for 300 million years? Cy Montgomery. First, hawks. And then after the break, turtles. But we began with a reminder of her previous visit to Clear and Vivid. Sai, this is going to be fun. Last time we talked, we talked a lot about octopuses. And and the octopus you introduced me to was nice and cuddly. Oh, yes. Well, I know you went home with some hickeys on your arms from her suckers. Yeah, but this is is a more extreme form of, of a relationship. Hawks. You love hawks. I didn't know this about you. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, you look at hawks, and they are so majestic, and they are so powerful and and symbols of freedom, and, you know, everyone kind of loves them in the sky. But once you have one on your falconry glove and you've got this animal inches from your face, I think anyone would fall in love. Well, maybe we ought to exclude me for the time being. I'm going to find out while we talk on this show, why I would want to fall in love with a hawk. First of all, I can understand hawks being descended from dinosaurs. Chickens and pigeons, not so much. <laughs> right, it's hard to think of. But thinking of a hawk as a, as a descendant of a dinosaur is the first thing that makes me wary. Well, yeah, that's wise. But they don't like to be touched, huh? unlike a dog or... Well, cats don't like it too much. But octopuses like to be touched. They love to be touched. Rudy loved it when you stroked her suckers and and caressed her mantle. And she loved tasting you with all of her skin. She was really enjoying it. She was clearly just as curious about you as you were about her. So what's the problem with hawks? Why don't they... (laughs) What's the matter? Well, hawks have a whole different... Umwelt, a whole different world. Their desire is different from all the other animals that I've been friends with in the past. Because almost everybody else that I've known, from octopuses to rhinoceroses even, um, you can get to know them through gentle touch. But hawks don't want that. What hawks want, which totally surprised me, All they want, really, is to chase game, to chase and capture some prey. And in this, they come alive like a a lit flame. When you first encountered the hawk, 
How did you get it to sit on your arm? How did you know it would stay there? My first encounter up close with a hawk was with a falconry instructor who had a dozen different hawks at her house. When you become a falconer, part of what you have to do is capture a wild hawk, a youngster, and get them used to being on your fist, on your glove, and show them that only good things will happen when they are on your glove. And in fact, that they should fly to your glove. They should come to you when you call because a reward awaits. And it takes a long time to get a hawk used to you. Because at first, they just scream bloody murder. They want you to go away. But if they get hungry enough and you offer them food, they'll see your glove is a safe place and they'll see that you can be useful to their lives. And often they'll choose your company. And that's an amazing thing. You can walk around with a hawk who's flying totally free and that hawk will follow you because they know that you're going to knock through a pile of leaves and some unfortunate vole or, or shrew will shoot out or a mole. And the hawk sees that. And then forever after, you are part of their hunting success file. But what was weird was, you know, I've, I've been a vegetarian for like 45 years and <laughs> I'm hunting. I mean, it's the last thing that I would want to do. I see a dead squirrel on the side of the road and I'm sick about it for like days. And I could not believe that getting to know a hawk made me love it so much that that hawk's desire became my desire and I wanted to become its hunting partner. I didn't want the food that it got, but I just wanted to see the hawk fulfilling its, its destiny, fulfilling its joy, and its joy became mine. You've talked about how different they are from us. Was that strangeness part of the attraction to you, that it's a part of nature that we don't come into contact with in the normal life we live? Yeah, you you are so perceptive. I'm sure I'm not the first person to point that out. But yeah, um, I I love both the sameness and the differences that we share with other creatures. And in a way, the more different something is from me, the more fascinated I am and the more I want to know, like, what's it like to be you? Hmm. But they are eccentric in one way that strikes me as really odd, and I wonder if you can explain it to me. They don't like to see humans wearing hats. What's with, <laughs> what's with hats? Yes, yeah, some of them just cannot stand if you're wearing a hat. Others don't like it if you're wearing sunglasses. It's like, what kind of a fashion critic are you? <laughs> and one time I was working with a, a hawk who I'd flown many times and got along with great, but I, I showed up at an event at which this hawk was with my falconry instructor, Nancy. And it was a formal event and I was wearing a dress. Well, being modest, it was a long dress. And so as far as the hawk was concerned, I had no legs. Where had my legs gone? <laughs> so this hawk just screamed at me, screamed at me like, 
I hate you. What have you done with your legs? You're messing with my mind. And would have bitten me, I think, or footed me. They were so angry about this. You, you, they don't always like changes. You know, it's interesting. They're predators. And I wonder if there's any connection between that and this tendency they seem to have to be very defensive if you approach them the wrong way. You're liable to get a claw in your face. Oh, yes. It's very easy to do just one thing different, and they'll they'll foot you, as it's called. My, my uh, falconry instructor, Nancy Cowan, who unfortunately is no longer with us, she had this experience with her husband's hawk. Um, I think it was a goss. And she went in to, to feed the hawk for him and asked, what should I do to feed the hawk? What do you usually do? And he presented three quail. One quail eats the quail, offers the other, eats the quail, offers the third, eats the quail. And after the third quail, the hawk flew into her face and dug its talons right next to her eye. And she was furious, but not with the hawk, with her husband. She said, Jim, what did you forget to tell me? And he made one little movement, usually at the end of feeding that hawk and had forgotten to tell Nancy that that signaled the end of the quail. What, was a movement and with his hand? He made a movement with his hand, and he would actually, although most hawks don't like to be touched with this particular hawk, he would just fluffle her breast for a second to let her know, okay, we're done now, and then he'd leave. But because that didn't happen, the hawk flew at her, because to the hawk, the biggest emergency imaginable is not someone's going to hurt me, but someone might take away my food. Mm. Someone might louse up my schedule of getting food. And they, they don't seem to be frightened at all. They just go into a rage. So you got to do everything right with a hawk. And yet you came to love them. Oh, yeah. But it's such a different love, Alan, than, than the kind of love that we share with our people and with our dogs and with our cats and with our octopuses and even with the turtles that I know and snakes that I know. It's such a different kind of love because it really asks nothing in return. I don't ask that hawk to love me back. What I want from that hawk is just to be in its glorious presence, and that's enough. And I think that of the different kinds of love that the, the ancient Greeks recognized, you know, philios, the, that gives us the word for philosophy, and um, eros, which, of course, is, you know, Cupid's love. And there's a kind of, of brotherly love that we have for our siblings and our children. But there's another kind of love that's higher still, and that they call agape. And that is the love that in the Bible, we're supposed to feel for God, and God's supposed to feel for us. And it's not transactional. It's not like, I'll pick you up at the airport if you pick me up at the airport. Mm. It's, it's not, um, you know, I'll kiss you if you kiss me. It's, it's, it's a completely pure love 
that feels very freeing. And to love someone like that, expecting nothing back, is kind of like, like flying in the sky. I'm a little bit of the way there toward understanding your love of hawks, but I'm not totally there yet. So we have to keep talking. I love talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank goodness. The idea that the hawk, as I've heard you say, the hawk will be satisfied if you're willing to be its servant. Yes. Well, that sounds like more being required of you than not expecting anything in return for your love. Yes, but it's my honor. And, and when you think about what we're supposed to do for God, you know, um, we are to serve him. We are to glorify him. And for me to be able to serve a hawk, this beautiful expression of, of power and freedom and majesty and strength, it's enough for me to be in close contact with someone like that. The idea of being in such close quarters with that ferocity, that strength, that ability to go for the kill in an instant, that seems to be in touch with nature in a way that you, you aren't with any other animal. Yes, I felt that. And that's why it was so exciting and so different and such a journey for me. But you have to learn what it goes for and what it won't tolerate. I mean, you're, oh, yeah. you were lucky you were told, don't, don't pet it. I mean, I, I had the misfortune once. Uh, it didn't turn out to be a misfortune, but it could have. I wrote a movie in which I also acted and directed, so I have myself to blame for this. I wrote a scene where I wrestle a tiger. Wow. And Yeah, right. I was just <laughs> That would I didn't remember that would appeal to you. <laughs> uh, yeah. So tell me, who was well, the tiger? How did it come out? You're still here, so that I'm was good. I'm still here. No, the tiger was interested in, I had, I had my arm wrapped and it would go for the arm because I put that out in front of me. But after a while, it just sat down and stared at me because it wasn't getting anywhere. And then it reached around behind me and bit my behind. So it, it figured things out. It didn't hurt. <laughs> but I was told by the handler, thank goodness, that if you step on its tail, it doesn't find out who's stepping on its tail. It attacks what's ever in front of it. Oh, boy. Yeah, so little tricks like that with ferocious animals, it <laughs> seems to me, are extremely important. This is one of those don't do this at home kids Exactly. And that's why, you know, I continue, even though Nancy's gone, I'm, I continue to learn from, from my friend Henry Walters, who's also a master falconer. There is so much stuff to learn about these animals and how you handle them. There's a whole vocabulary that doesn't exist for other stuff. There's equipment, all with special names. And you also got to, to learn, you know, the, the personality quirks of the individuals that you're working with. You know, the one who doesn't like sunglasses, that's important to know. Yeah. One dislikes the sunglasses so much that it would fly from its perch and take the sunglasses with its talons off the person's face. Oh, my God. 
yeah, like so that was that was good to know before yeah. you <laughs> right. doing that. Birds are declining, right? Does that mean that hawks have less to do their predation on? Yeah, and they also have less habitat, and they're dealing with global climate change. They're affected by pollution. Um, any poisons in the animals that they eat will kill them. So if we put out poison for a mouse and the, and the hawk eats the mouse, the hawk can get poisoned from that. Huh? Exactly. And a poisoned mouse, of course, is staggering about in the open, and it's going to attract the attention of every predator for miles around. Yeah. So short of making friends with hawks and bringing them home and f- feeding them other birds, what what could we do to protect the hawks and therefore protect the whole ecosystem? Well, one would be to preserve their, their habitat, mm. which is the habitat of everybody else who lives there. So that's really good, and, uh, preserving forests, even preserving grassland. There's hundreds of different kinds of, of hawks around, not using poison, getting rid of lead shot, because if a bird eats a tiny bit of lead, if, say, you know, someone has shot a rabbit and not killed it, and there's still a little bit of lead in that animal, if a hawk eats that, lead, as you know, affects the central nervous system and will make the bird either die outright or it will mess up its nervous system bad enough that it can't fly precisely. And if you can't fly pre- with great precision, you're flying into power lines, you're missing your prey, you're crashing into stuff. So, you know, that's a really delicate um, system that has to be operating perfectly for them. And, you know, for the long, longest time, we persecuted all predators. People believed that eagles carried off lambs, for example, which, of course, they never did. People were afraid they would carry off their children, which they don't do either. Um, and used to be folks just shot them. They hmm. didn't want them killing their chickens. They were afraid they were going to attack their livestock or their kids. And... Many hawk species are still recovering from that. When we come back, Cy Montgomery takes a break from her love affair with hawks to tell me about her latest passion, turtles. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other and all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you, either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. 
This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Cy Montgomery. Let's talk about turtles. I'd love to. What do you love about turtles? Oh, my gosh. I think everybody just loves turtles. I I think these guys, they arose at the same time as the dinosaurs, and they're still with us. I think one reason we love them is their shells are on, you know, they carry their home on their back, <laughs> they used to say. And they seem so wise and so ancient. And one reason I wanted to study turtles and spend some time with them was because I thought they could show me something important about time. Mm. And I thought, who better to help me than someone who's been around for 300 million years? <laughs> and some of these animals can live for hundreds of years. And particularly when I turned 60, I'm, I'm 64 now, I started to think think about time more and in a different way. And I thought, these reptiles have something to show me. And little did I know when I started this study that time itself was going to change dramatically because I started doing this right at the beginning of COVID when time just paused. Mm. There was a cartoon, instead of saying, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, looking at the calendar, it just said day, 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 day. But with turtles, you kind of connect to that kind of sacred, wild, natural time. You're free of the clock and the calendar. And knowing the turtles and their ways, I think, anchored me in time at, at a, a moment in history when so many of our, our fellow countrymen and people around the world felt disconnected from time. A few years ago on the television series Scientific American Frontiers, we visited the Galapagos, and I was in the presence of these huge, old turtles. And it was an extraordinary experience. I think the thing that impressed me the most about them, two things really. One was what you've talked about, how slowly time seems to pass for them. And the other thing is how long they take at living. I wonder if you know or if anyone you've read knows if there's anything to be learned from a turtle being able to live 100 or 150 or more years that we can apply to ourselves. Oh, yes. The very first thing I would say is patience. Well, I guess you need patience if you're going to live 200 years. Yes, you totally (laughs) do. You can't be rash. You can't be rash. Do turtles tend to be monogamous? No. And in fact, I mean, turtle sex is kind of rapey. Um, But there were these two turtles, these tortoises, um, who had lived in a zoo together for 115 years, a male and a female, Poldy and Bibi. And one day after living together happily, for over a century, Poldy just woke up and could not stand Bibi and bit him. And it was so violent that they had to be separated. They tried everything to try to get these two tortoises to get along again. They, they, you know, they went to a, essentially a counselor. They even tried like sex toys to see if that would help, <laughs> but nothing would help. So they, they had to be exiled from each other. 
So, you know, they, they have personalities just like we do, and they can be just as changeable as, as, as we can. Well, I tell you, I know what happened with those two turtles. Oh, yeah? He did, yeah, he did something she didn't like after they were together for two years. <laughs> and then he did it again 98 years later. And she said, I told you not to do that again. <laughs> I bet you're right. I bet you're right. Or else he said, that shell makes you look fat. But <laughs> <laughs> Turtles know a lot about patience. They do everything slowly. They live slowly and they die slowly. They heal beautifully, but they heal very slowly when they're injured. And we learned that when my collaborator, Matt Patterson, and I worked at a turtle rescue league in Southbridge, Massachusetts, with these two wonderful ladies, Alexia Bell and Natasha Nowick, who look like they're living in a normal suburban house, but in the basement there are 250 to 1,000 turtles at any given time Mm. that they are taking care of, who have been injured, who have gotten sick, or who are unwanted. And we were helping them with turtles who had cracked shells, and turtles who had horrible brain injuries, and turtles that were missing eyes and missing limbs. And while they can't regrow a missing eye or missing limb, they can come back from horrendous brain injuries. They can survive their shell being smashed to bits. You just have to be very patient. And one turtle that we knew really well, who I would love for you to come and meet, his name is Fire Chief. And he was hit by a car in 2018 when he was crossing from his fire pond to his winter pond across the street and his shell was smashed and all the firemen knew him and they were very upset but even though they run into burning buildings to rescue people from the flames they were too afraid to pick up this huge 42 pound snapping turtle Mm. to help him so they call these two ladies (laughs) so alexia and natasha load their kayak onto their turtle ambulance, which actually has a light on top of it, and it has a siren so that they (laughs) shoot through the traffic on their way to rescue these turtles. And they drive to Fire Chief's pond, and they launch the kayak, and Alexia sees that Fire Chief is about to dive in the water. And she dives into the water, and she comes up with this giant 60-year-old 42-pound snapper who's madder than a hornet, who's just gotten this horrible shell injury that's paralyzed his leg and his tail, and he's bleeding, and he's angry, and he's wiggling. They stuff him into a bin, and they take him back to their hospital. They patch him up. And I met him in 2020, and Matt and I were given the job of doing physical therapy with this paralyzed turtle. How did you do that? Well, for one thing, Alexia, um, with with input from numbers of other people, designed a wheelchair for Fire Chief so he could exercise his, his front legs. And once that wasn't frustrating him, he could he could walk outdoors in the summertime, mostly using his front legs, but then he started to use his back legs and he started to use his tail. 
And we also had a sling that we could use. And Matt would walk on one side and I would walk on the other side and Fire Chief could walk mainly using his front legs, but he could use his back legs too. So Fire Chief got so he could walk again. Hmm. And we went back to his original pond to see it because we'd always dreamed of restoring him to his pond. He was king of this pond. Well, when we saw where he lived, we were so disheartened because he crawled to this fire pond when he was a little hatchling that would fit in your, the palm of your hand easily. 60 years ago, the pond was on a tiny little country road, but now... It's a state highway. And we realized since he would need to cross that highway every year to get to his winter pond, we couldn't put him back, even though he was now healed. So what to do? Well, Matt Patterson bought a house for him and his wife on our street here in rural Hancock, New Hampshire. And he dug a pond. And that's where Fire Chief is going to spend the rest of his life and all of our lives. Now, in the winter, this particular winter, he's spending it indoors, but he's already spent a whole summer outside, king of his pond once again. And it's such a great story, and it makes us so happy. And this big snapping turtle, he will not bite us. He will let us pet him. He will let us feed him by hand. He inhibits his bite to make sure he doesn't hurt us. I was going to ask you, does he have, does he seem to have a conscious relationship with the people who saved him? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we know he recognizes us. He recognizes Natasha. He recognizes Alexia. And we've seen him with other people um, who, who don't know us. Um, and he will, he will snap at them. I mean, we, we don't take some stranger and push them up against a, 42-pound snapping turtle or anything, but yeah. um, he definitely behaves differently around the people who he knows and trusts. So you mentioned the notion of consciousness. We certainly believe we have consciousness. We're humans. But we tend to think that other animals don't or have a very limited sense of it. How much have you been aware or think you've been aware of consciousness close to what we experience in other animals? Oh, very much so. I mean, sometimes more so than some of the people in in public office in America. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean You're not gonna run so, have a turtle run for president, I hope. I would totally I would totally have a turtle worms for everyone. It would be great. Um, we miss so much of what's going on with animals because we're in a big hurry and we just don't watch. Very recently, it was reported that over 20 species of turtles vocalize. Hmm. Now, people think of turtles as utterly silent. Well, they aren't. We're just missing this. There are turtles who will speak while they're still inside their eggs to their siblings in the nest, and their mothers will call to them. And so when they hatch, they'll follow their mother into the water. We had no idea this stuff was going on. And so much of what's going on with animals mentally, we don't see. And part of it is 
literally our our eyes aren't set up to see something that slow the same way that a lot of slow animals eyes aren't set up to see something that fast turtles probably don't see but they're incredibly intelligent people think oh that stupid turtle's just sitting there well that turtle is mapping its environment in with incredible precision and will remember that for decades or centuries now i get lost going to you know the 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 restaurant's bathroom i'm i'm pathetic <laughs> with that kind of thing mm. but a turtle's not going to get lost and they are going to use cues that we don't even sense they they're very alert to, to chemical cues that we don't experience but they do share a lot of the mental experiences that we do and we know this because we can test things like learning a maze turtles that have been tested in this way perform as well as rats in terms of learning the maze. They don't run the maze as fast, but they learn and remember the maze just as, as fast as a rat. That turtles are also very emotional, but because their faces aren't full of muscles the way ours are, we don't always see it. Well, how do you know they're emotional? Well, I'll tell you, for example, the turtle who first greeted us when we went to Turtle Rescue League. We stepped over this big barrier into the living room and out of the corner comes stomping this red-footed tortoise. He's beelining for us. He's very interested and he looks us in the face and then he jerks his head to the side, jerks it to the middle, jerks it to the side, jerks it to the middle. That is how they greet you. It's a greeting ritual. First, because I came in first, Pizza Man, which was the name of this tortoise, greeted me in this way. Then he moved on to Matt and did exactly the same thing to him. And then followed us all as we sat down on the couch and patrolled around our feet. He was very curious and welcoming of us. You've made me even more curious about the other animals. And I, I'm struck by the fact that on this program, we talk a lot about paying more attention to one another as humans. And I get the impression we can gain a lot by paying more attention to the other animals and getting to know who they are and what they're like. You, you live a, a blessed life is getting to know all the other occupants of the world. Oh, it really does feel blessed. And it's a blessing to talk to you, Alan. Thank you for making the time. We always end our show, as you remember, maybe, with seven quick questions. Let's see if your answers are any different this time. Uh-oh. Oh, gosh. What do you wish you really understood? I wish I could read the minds of animals better than I do from trying to interpret the, the behavioral cues. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Ah, well, I do remember how I answered that. Usually, if someone makes a mistake, I've made the same one. And I'll admit that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that too, but then I learned X, Y, Z. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh, I, I think in uh, when I was working out, someone asked me if I'd been a cheerleader. 
<laughs> Did they ask if you were busy Friday night? <laughs> no, I don't get that question anymore. <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, boy. I haven't really found anything that works. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I have either. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table with, next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a genuine conversation? Well, I'm apt to say something like, did you know that octopuses can taste with all of their skin? <laughs> and if they don't leave, <laughs> we usually can talk for quite a while. What gives you confidence? Being with animals. Oh, that's nice. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? Oh, man, so many of them. Well, I guess uh, Rachel Carson's books and Elizabeth Marshall Thomas's books and my husband Howard Mansfield's books and Barry Lopez's books and, oh, gosh, I feel like my 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 life gets expanded almost every day, don't you? It does, especially when I talk to you and people like <laughs> you who have such a vast knowledge of the rest of the world. Man, you have the best guests. Oh, my gosh. And everyone loves talking to you. I love talking to you. So thank you, Sai. This has been a really fun conversation. Oh, I, I have loved it, Alan. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Cy Montgomery is a naturalist who's written some 34 books on creatures as different as spiders and bears, dolphins and octopuses, hummingbirds and condors. Her most recent book is The Hawk's Way, and she's working with Matt Patterson, her fellow turtle fan, on a new book beautifully illustrated by Matt called The Book of Turtles. Our Patreon subscribers can check out terrific videos of Cy hunting with her favorite hawk, and visiting with Fire Chief, the snapping turtle, in his winter basement den. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohini, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with veteran technology writer Kevin Kelly. When chatbots burst upon the world, Kevin was the person we went to for a clear and vivid explanation of what these AI programs can and can't do. It's sort of like someone who's really, really good at ad-libbing things that they don't, and talking about things that they really don't understand. And you can kind of nod your head. It's, it's very akin to that. So it doesn't really understand what it's saying, but it's so good at mimicking the patterns 
that is good enough. To get something outside of that pattern completely is very difficult to do. And this is one of the reasons why I don't think humans are gonna lose their jobs, is that if you see some of the people who are making some of the best images and the best stuff with GPT-3, it takes a thousand hours. Kevin Kelly, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.